Peter's account of the life of Christ. Um, Papias also testified that Mark wrote down what Peter remembered accurately. How do you know that? Well, there's strong evidence to, that shows that Papias was actually a good personal friend of the apostle John. And he knew him personally. And John, no doubt, since Mark was the earliest written gospel, John, no doubt, would have told Papias this part wasn't right. And this part wasn't accurate. This didn't really happen this way. And this wasn't there. But he didn't. And so Papias saying that Mark's account was accurate is quite compelling, seeing that he knew he knew the Apostle John personally. And the book of Mark is almost certainly the entire testimony of Peter because it mentions Peter, by the way, more than any other gospel. And quite frankly, the book just sounds like Peter. Mark communicates a sense of crisis in his book. There's a sense of crisis, like the status quo has just been ruptured somehow. You feel this, you know, this minor key, this kind of fast-paced, action-packed, we got to fix something that's been broken type of a feel in the book. And that matches Peter's impetuous personality, his intense personality that we know about. Peter also most, uh, mostly spoke Aramaic, we know. And Mark has more Aramaic phrases than any, uh, in his gospel than any other gospel. We also know that Peter himself spoke very affectionately about Mark. So there's a personal connection there. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he called John Mark his son. He also mentions that Mark was with him when he wrote that, probably in Rome. So we know from Peter's own, uh, own writing that they spent a lot of time together. They had an affinity for each other. And so it's not hard to educatedly imagine that he took down the account, Peter's account of the life of Jesus. Um, Robertson says, Mark's gospel throbs with life and bristles with vivid details. We see with Peter's eye and catch almost the very look and gestures of Jesus as he moved among men in his work of healing men's bodies and saving men's souls. Um, and like I said, Mark is also very reliable because it was the earliest gospel written. This is without doubt and beyond dispute um, among, like I said, among the New Testament scholars. In fact, some scholars believe that it could have been written even as early as 50 AD. And here's why this is important. Here's why this is significant. Because it would have been in widespread circulation and in widespread use within the lifespan of the people who are actually there to witness these events. That's important, and I'll, I hope to unpack why a little bit. The people that were that saw the people that were healed by Jesus, uh, the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof that we'll read about, the person who carried the cross for Jesus, the the women who watched his body being placed in the tomb, the people who followed Jesus for three years, all of these participants in Jesus' life, they repeatedly and continually told these stories and incidents and they told their families and friends about it, what they had seen. For decades they told these stories and what happened and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote them down and how, now we have the gospel. And Mark was written so early that it could have been refuted. People that were there. It was written, circulated, and in widespread use and accepted as history by the time, um, by the time most of the people passed away. Here's why this matters. <laughs> Critics today, especially in the Seattle area, more um, modern, um, we call it 
crit uh, critical analysis of the Bible that is, by the way, it's treated by Life magazine and the magazines you'll see on the shelf, especially around Easter and Christmas time. It's treated like that, like critical scholarship is the latest scholarship that has come out. I'm here to tell you, as someone who, who looks into and knows these things, it's not true. It's actually extremely outdated scholarship. But it's read in our culture and in our city like it is, like it is, you know, hot off the press. And these people and these magazines, these tabloids, these documentaries, whatever you want to look out that really rely on critical theory or critical scholarship, uh, more liberal scholarship, not politically speaking, but theologically speaking, they today will try to assert that the gospel accounts of Jesus are legends made up and propagated by the church, by church leaders some hundreds of years after these events. In other words, they were written intentionally, fabricated to shape a movement. Just like, I don't know, Antifa or, or Black Lives Matter or whatever movement that's just starting up now, you come up with a creed, you come up with a propaganda, you sell it in a certain way, you show your thing, and you're trying to shape public opinion and to get something growing and to get something something going that's big and their logic is the only way you can do that is if you write it hundreds of years after people have already died so they can't refute your claims therefore the gospel the the, the critical theory people say that uh, uh excuse me the critical theory theologically speaking <laughs> i know that's another that means other things today but critical scholarship says that these gospels were written hundreds of years after the actual events, they're not meant to be accurate. They're fabricated like comic books to get people to believe in a movement that would grow. And that's how they say how Christianity grew. It grew. It grew on legends and myths and those types of things long after the events actually happened. But like I said, you see, legends must be written when the people who are actually there and their children and their children's children are dead and gone. So they can't say that's not true. That's not how it happened. That's the way legends, that's the only way a legend can stick and gain traction. But the Gospels, and especially Mark's Gospel, was already in widespread use and acceptance within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, and yet no one said that we can find, no record of anyone said, it's a lie because I was there and it didn't happen like that. It was accepted as historic fact in their day. And this is now in current scholarship beyond dispute. The Apostle Paul told King Agrippa, you remember this famous quote in Acts, the Apostle Paul, he said to, to King Agrippa, he said, these things were not done in a corner. In other words, he's inviting the king, as Paul's on trial, he's inviting the king, look into it. You can find this facts out by yourself. You don't need to take my word from it. You can go talk to the people that were there, the Apostle Paul said. There were hundreds and sometimes thousands of people there who could have raised their voice and said, this isn't true or this is an exaggeration or whatever, but we don't find anything like that. In fact, Paul 
even boldly encourages the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 to go find the eyewitnesses who were still alive and ask them about the accuracy of the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not metaphorically, but the actual event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He said, quote, there are more than 500 eyewitnesses, some of whom are still alive today, who saw Jesus alive after he was killed, end quote. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 6. How could he boldly write something like that unless there really were people that were alive that could corroborate his story? Also, by the way, the material is far too counterproductive in their, in, in their content to be legends. If Mark is just church propaganda trying to find some popular message to, to get people to follow then there are so many counterproductive things within this that would, shut, that would have shut that down. For example, Mark reports in great detail, very great detail, the failure of Peter to, of de, in, in denying Jesus. <laughs> Why would one of the church's main leaders write a detailed account of his own failure unless it were true? There's only one reason and that is that it was true. It could not be to get people to jump onto his, to his uh, movement. The gospel records that the first people that Jesus entrusted his message to after his resurrection were very counterculturally women. If the church was making this up to further its message, this would have been a very dumb move in that culture. Women were regarded without controversy at that point. There wasn't even a debate about it. They were regarded as property in that day. Their testimony wasn't even considered valuable in court, either in Roman court or in Jewish court, by the way. There wasn't like a, uh, you know, a a group of of, uh, women protesting their rights that the Christian movement thought, oh, we could get them on board. There wasn't, it wasn't. It was very uh, agreed upon. If you're trying to create a religion, why would you write about the main hero, by the way, losing heart in God by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would you, you know, did you know that many martyrs after Jesus met their death more bravely in some respects than Jesus? Look at the things that Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's scared. My heart is, I'm, you know, unto death. My heart's about to burst. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That's the leader that they're propagating and who is defeated on a cross. The only logical reason as to why someone would write these things, the only logical reason, just using logic here, is if they were actually true. At Calvary Wallingford, you guys all know this. We strongly believe that the Bible is the revelation from God, is the revelation from God to us. His, His word. God's purpose and intention is to actively communicate with mankind. And he does this in various ways. He does it through creation. Romans 1 says that. But he also does this specifically through his revealed written word called the Bible. We can choose to ignore his message and interpret biblical text according to our feelings and desires. Kind of, this is how it hit me. 
This is how it comes up for me. This is how I, this is how I take it. But if we do, we suffer the consequence, consequences and miss out on knowing God the way he desires. And an entire culture can be shaped based on, here's how it, here's how it relates to me. Here's how I think about it. That's a problem. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard the metaphor of the old, you know, the adage of, of a ship that just ba- barely goes off coordinates. By the time it, by the, you know, miles down the road, it's very off, off of its coordinates, just by little incremental slips. That's why it's very important for us that we divide the Bible accurately as much as we can. It, you know, I might not always get it right, but it is my true north every time I am trying to divide this, this word to you. But um, also, please don't take my word for it. Push back. I need your pushback. If there's something I said that's not right, tell me, please. I need it. It's how iron sharpens iron. It's how we keep each other fresh and sharp and on course. I'm accountable to you. Be, as the Bible says, be good Bereans. The Bereans were those that didn't take the Apostle Paul's word for it. They went and looked it up and verified it. They fact-checked it according to the Bible. It's so important for the culture of our church, and I would say for the culture of Christendom in general, that we rightly divide the word of truth. Way more important than if we rightly divide culture or society or the news or what's happening. First and foremost, Christians rightly divide the word of truth, and from there, that determines how we look at things like society, culture, news, and those types of things. But we've got to be generally, more or less, on the same page in a general sense. Largely unified. And healthily, if we're divided, healthily so. Okay. The Bible itself says, this bold claims that the Bible has about itself. Second Timothy 3, you know it. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Think about that. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, it's sapiential. It's wisdom literature in a sense. It tells us how we should live and how the best way we can live to, get, to be blessed in our lives. <clears throat> that the man of God may be complete, or woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Complete. That's the point. And that assumes, if you're here and you come every Sunday to listen to the Word of God, I am making the assumption that you are admitting that you are incomplete. Right? Can we get a hearty amen? Amen. Amen. That's, That's the starting point of Christians. We come, the only way we can learn from this book and learn from this word is if we realize and admit that we have more to learn. I have been studying the Bible since I, I can't, well, I don't even remember. The first sermon I taught, I was 16, 15, 16 years old, somewhere in there. And then I came back, I went to Bible college, and I came back from Bible college, and the whole summer, my youth pastor said, pulpit's yours, teach through the book of Galatians all summer long. I was like eight or something like that, I don't remember. I was young. I taught through the book of Galatians. 
I've now taught through the book of Galatians more times than I can count. And I can tell you, I'm always blown away. And I'm not making that up. I always come away feeling like I know barely anything at all. I walk away from studying the Bible humbled. And I'm, I'm really not making that up to make a point. I really do. I walk away going, man, the more I know, the more I realize how much I don't know. Now I'm in a seminary and I feel like I know nothing. That should be all of our stances. We're going to come every Sunday to this book. We realize, Lord, I'm incomplete. I don't know. There are certain things I do know. Let's be real. There are certain things we do know. But there's a lot that we don't know. Here I am at, your, at the master's feet to learn more. The moment we lose that humble attitude is the moment we can't learn. The moment we can no longer receive. The moment we're stuck in some narrow view. The moment we, we stop being blessed, what, is, what does God say? That God resists the who? Proud. Why? Why? Because what do proud people think? They think they're done. I don't need to learn anymore. I got this, or at least no more than everybody here. God resists someone like that, but he gives grace to the humble. Why? Practically speaking, a humble person is there to receive. They're there to go, gosh, I don't know everything. I don't see 2020 on this issue or on this, these things. So <clears throat> it starts with me. I come humbling myself. And we all come on Sunday. We humble ourselves. Look at Second uh, Peter. He says, for we, did not, uh, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. By the way, this is straight to the... Uh, critical scholarship and liberal scholarship of today. It's almost like a shot through time. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised propaganda or myths when we made known to you the power of the coming, that's the gospel, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. For when, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, he's talking about his baptism and probably the Mount of Transfiguration that Peter was there for, and the voice that was born to him by, by the majesty of his glory, majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born, born from heaven. We were, we were with him on the holy mountain. Now either Peter is lying or this isn't Peter penning this and that person's lying. That's another theory by um, you know, uh, critical scholarship and analysis. <clears throat> but he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's the Bible. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men, human beings, flawed men, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Straight from the horse's mouth right there. This is not propaganda. It's not myth. But although the biblical text is divinely inspired, God chose to work through human writers, in this case Mark, to deliver his message to us. So this book, the Bible, has human fingerprints all over it. It's very unique. 
The languages he chose to use were human languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Peter, through Mark, records the actions of Jesus. In other words, we are going to learn by going through Mark. This is why I'm so excited. We are going to learn what Jesus is like. Think of that. We're going to learn what Jesus is like, not just what he believes, not just what he stands for. We'll learn all those things, but we, we do well to go to Matthew or Luke or John for those types of things. But in Mark, we're going to learn the affect, the personality, the person of Jesus. We're going to see what his personality is like. We're going to see what makes him happy. We're going to see what makes him mad. We're going to see what kind of leader he is. We're going to see what he cares about the most. We're going to see what his pet topics are, what really gets him riled up, what gets him moving. We get to see Jesus as Peter watched him cry for the brokenhearted and have compassion on the diseased and the marginalized in society. We're going to see Jesus' heart break for those people. In other words, we're going to experience him. We get to see Jesus as he confronted evil and went head-to-head -head with the ancient religious system. We're going to see what a brave person he is. In Mark, we're not going to primarily analyze what Jesus said and the message he was speaking, but we're going to get to know his life and the way that he was living. This book is about knowing Jesus personally. And, it, and I'm not putting some spin on this. It was intentionally written, literarily, in this way, to give you a living present tense reality, it's clear that Mark wants to show you someone that still is here now. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking of that. So who is Jesus Christ then? That begs the next question. It's amazing to me that every Sunday, millions of people gather all over the world to study Think about this right now. Millions of people have gathered all over the world to study to think about and to try to live the life of Jesus. Think that right now. It's not just us in this room. What other historic figure does that happen for? Julius Caesar? Napoleon? No. Only Jesus had that kind of draw, but who is he? This is the most amazing and life-transforming question that anybody could ever consider. Who is Jesus. Who is he? Um, there's a poem that I like to read. Or, uh, it might be a song, but it says, Jesus on the radio, Jesus on a late night show, Jesus in a dream, looking all serene, Jesus on a steeple, Jesus in the Gallup pole. Jesus has his own, his very own brand of rock and roll. I watched him on the silver screen. I bought the action figurine. Jesus started something new. Jesus coined a phrase or two. Jesus split the line at the turning point of time. Jesus sparked a controversy. Jesus, known for his mercy, gave a man his sight. Jesus isn't white. Oh, and then it, he, at the very end, he says, oh, can anybody show me the real Jesus? Can anybody show me who he really is? Well, Mark boldly tells us who he is from the first line of this book. For to really find out who Jesus is, we need to go to the Bible. We need to go to the document itself. Here it is. Let's look at verse 1. I think we've got the whole thing. Yeah, there it is. The beginning of 
here's that word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now stop there. That one sentence is enough for now. Right there in the, in the beginning, Mark tells us who Jesus is. Notice in verse 1 that Mark gives us three specific names or titles. Did you see that? The first one is Jesus. The second one is Christ. And the third title is Son of God. The first one, Jesus, is just, is just his name, right? That's Jesus' name. And you need to know that the name Christ is not his last name. <laughs> I'm sure you know that by now. In that day, they didn't have people's last names. And by the way, Jesus was a very common name. You need to, this is important for us to understand. It was common in that day. It wasn't like a name that had never been used before. It wasn't that like God came up with some cool, unique, never heard before name, Jesus, to make him stand out. This would be like if it, if it were, you know, Nick or Nathan or Paul or, or you know, just any name, Mike. In the beginning, this is the Gospel of Mike, a very common everyday used name, Bob, Bill, whatever it is. In other words, here's the point of this. God gave him a human, very common name because in a sense, this is the complexity of the reality of Jesus. Jesus is a real person. He's one of us. I love the way one scholar put it. When you get to the book of Revelation and you get a glimpse of heaven, you notice that there's a human on the throne. <laughs> Jesus is a, he's, he, and this makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We kind of get like, ooh, you're bordering on heresy. But in a sense, it, he is fully, fully human. He wasn't a ghost, a phantom, or a figment of someone's imagination. He wasn't like a mythical god like those of the Roman and Greek mythology. No, Jesus isn't on that level. He was a real person who had real pre preferences and likes and dislikes. He talked. He walked. He ran. He slept. He ate. He smiled. He frowned. He got upset at certain things. He laughed. He cried. He hugged. He kissed. He loved his mom. He probably had a favorite meal. He, had, he experienced nostalgia. He loved certain things about certain towns. He loved certain foods. He enjoyed different aspects of people's personality. He, 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 he is a person. And he's not just fully God, he's also, he's also fully man, fully human, very relatable. He is God, and, he, and he's also human being. Secondly, he says he's Jesus the Christ. Again, this is not his last name, but this is a proclamation. This is very important. This is a proclamation that Jesus is the fulfillment of the long-awaited Christ or Messiah, a prophetic figure long foretold by the Jewish people and Jewish prophets and sages come to bring humanity back to God's presence, back to Eden again. You understand, that word for a Jewish person, Jesus Christ, was packed with meaning. Thousands of years of meaning packed into that phrase. And he's saying, this is Jesus, human, the Christ, the one, come to make all the wrongs right again. To come to heal all the wounds. 
come to bring mankind back to God to, to finally wipe every tear from our eye. That's why he's here. He is the fulfillment of that. Long foretold, he's the anointed one. That's what the word literally means. I'm sure you know that, the anointed one. Here, Mark is speaking to his Jewish readers and proclaiming to them that Jesus is the long-awaited, fulfilled fulfillment of the promised Messiah. It was foretold by the ancient prophets that one day at just the right time, God himself would come to fix and save this broken world. Now, listen, most of the Jewish world was waiting for a Messiah who was more than human. We know this. We have evidence about this. Most of the Jewish world was waiting for a Messiah who was kind of superhuman, more than human. The Old Testament prophetic scriptures are really clear about this. In fact, did you guys know that the superhero Superman was written by a Jewish man based on the idea of a Messiah? Someone human, but superman, superhuman, that would come to have compassion on this world. Um, the Old Testament prophetic scriptures are, we can just start with the Bible itself. Isaiah 9, verse 6, is a Christmas verse. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. We don't like that, but it is a political phrase. It's a political term. This is what scholars call theopolitical. Okay? The government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God, he's called. This one coming. He will be called Mighty God. Micah 5.2 also declares that the Messiah would have, quote, origins from of old, from of ancient times. And now even post-biblical literature, extra-biblical literature, biblical sources from the ancient world make it clear that most Jews thought of the Messiah as, a be as, as being God incarnate. For example, the Psalm of Solomon Found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Messiah is described as being without sin, taught by God, and, quote, powerful in the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you from 1 Enoch, not a biblical text. It says, the chosen one was concealed in the presence of the Lord of Spirits prior to the creation of the world and for all eternity. Let me read to you uh, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, penned, penned uh, over a hundred years before the birth of Christ. Okay, just a hundred years before the birth of Christ. Here's what they say. For the Lord shall appear on the earth, and himself shall save men. And himself shall save men. Then shall all the spirits of deceit be given to, the, to, be, given to be trodden underfoot. Then shall I arise in joy and will bless the Most High because, his mar because of His marvelous works. Because God has taken a body and eaten with men and saved men. Super interesting, isn't it? It's clear, even from secular sources, that people understood that the world was broken and lost and needed a divine kind of Savior. The divine Savior was called the Christ and here, Mark reveals the Savior's name, Jesus. He's saying, this is him. He's come. But look, he goes even further. This is just in the first verse, you guys. He goes even further by calling Jesus the Son of God. I remember when I was first studying this, I realized I can't get beyond verse 1. I just can't do it because it's so packed. He calls him the Son of God. Now, that is a very unique title 
And I'll just tell you up front, this is an out from the very first gospel ever penned, from the first line, this is an outright claim of divinity. Let no one, let there be no bones about it and no mistake from the earliest gospel penned about Christianity and the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an outright claim of divinity. It means that he is the unique son of God and has a unique relationship with God the Father. Not only is he, is he the son of God, but he is God the son. In other words, he is God. And Mark is, Mark is now going to demonstrate that. He's going to give proof to it in the next verse. Look at verse 2, if it's still up there. It's, here's, as it is written. In other words, he's saying, let me prove it to you. He's the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So in verse 1, he called him the Christ. Messiah, and then in verse two, he call or verse three, he calls him Lord, which is the word Jehovah. According to this very important Old Testament prophecy, this is from Isaiah forty, verse three, that Mark just quoted. Before the Lord, the Messiah, the the Christ comes, will come a messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's an advance man to the coming Savior of the world. He was in charge of getting things prepared for the Messiah's arrival. This is a very royal term. A messenger is a royal term. In ancient times, before a king would go anywhere, he would send out advance men to, to literally, in some cases, make his path straight. They would inspect the roads and make sure that the king could... I mean, we do this today, you know. Before the president of the United States goes anywhere, they send out an advanced team. I actually watched this on YouTube last week because I'm a geek, but they send out this advanced team of, I think there was like 40 planes and helicopters that, oh no, 40 planes that hold our own American helicopters and Jeeps. They don't use any foreign cars where they go anywhere. They ship them over in advance. And they inspect all the roads, all the resources, or all the airports, Everywhere they can go, they come up with exit plans. They prepare the way for the president. That's what this is referring to. In ancient times, they would do the same. They'd send out advance men that would get logs out of the road. They would make sure that bandits, bandits weren't there to try to kill the king. They, they would do all of this prep work before he would come. Now, according to the quote from Isaiah in verse 3, the Messiah will be the Lord. The word for Lord in the ancient Hebrew is the word Yahweh. There's only, there's, okay, by the way, factoid, you know, we usually use the term Elohim for God, right? For the supreme God. Did you know that there are more, there are many Elohims in the Bible? Elohim is a, is a generic word for God or super, spirit, uh, spiritual beings that are still them, even themselves, under nature, under the laws of nature. They could be demons, they could be angels. Uh, Daniel uses the word talking about principalities that have um, uh, uh, jurisdiction over certain regions, right? Um, but there's only one Yahweh. That's what he's referring to here. Yah he's getting very specific. He's using this to only to refer to God supreme. So according to this, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed royal king, and Yahweh are synonymous according to the first line of the earliest gospel that was ever penned about Christianity. 
You guys, it's unrefutable. It's incontroversial. Anybody that says Christianity never intended to make Jesus God, they have not read the first line of the earliest gospel that was ever penned by an eyewitness account. I'm emphasizing this for a reason. And Mark goes on to tell us in verse 4 through 8 that this messenger that will prepare the way for Messiah is named John. So he gets his specific name, John the Baptist, and we'll get into him next week. So let me just add it up for you real quick. According to this ancient quote from Isaiah 43, Jehovah God, Yahweh God, the Messiah will come right after a messenger. And Mark proclaims that messenger to be John the Baptist. Who came right after John the Baptist? It's the Sunday school answer. Someone can say it. Jesus. So, who, so according to this, logically, what is Mark clearly trying to say? According to this, who is Jesus? Yahweh God. And that's why you cannot be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God. It is impossible. That's why this is... What I just broke down for you here from the first gospel ever penned is why this is a core tenet of the faith. We can differ on a lot of different things, but the divinity of Jesus Christ and the humanity of Jesus Christ is a non-budging issue for Christians. You are not a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus Christ and Yahweh God are synonymous, are the same. Mark asserts that the Lord God, the divine king, let your mind just suck on this like a Jolly Rancher for a second. Mark asserts that the Lord God, the being himself, we're not talking about a being that is himself subject to the laws of the universe. We're talking about the foundation that all contingent laws are fastened upon. We're talking about beyond the metaphor, we're talking about beyond the, the, uh, atoms and, and all the building blocks of reality, beyond matter itself, beyond a multiverse, if that's what's going on, beyond all of that, there is a, a reality by which every other part of reality is, is a projection of his power. You, in other words, according to the Bible, and by the way, all ancient religions, you are not a being. You are partaking of being right now. You are contingent. You are dependent. You're not your, every flower you see is an expression of Yahweh. Every bird that flies by, every move that I'm making right now is a power that is not in myself. My heart is beating without me telling it to. I'm breathing. I'm thinking. All sorts of things are happening in order for me to do that that are outside of my control because I am partaking of reality, infinite reality himself. And Mark says that absolute, that infinite came and, became, and entered into his own reality. Think of that. Think of it throughout this week and enjoy it. Be, it will take your view of God and it will blow it up. And you'll see things differently. A hummingbird that goes by, 
your, your husband or your wife, the look in their face, everything, the food you eat. It, that, this, the reality that the Bible has infuses everything with power that our Western world has cut off and made everything so small because we've categorized everything. Jesus has come to rescue his people. The message of the gospel is not that God sent an anointed leader to save the world. Do you please understand that? The message of Mark from the outset is not that God sent an anointed leader to save the world. It's not that he sent just a really great human being that I really like. People in Seattle that love Jesus because he's a great human being, right? And a great moral teacher. Mark would say, oh gosh, it's, he, it's, it, it's, it's that close to blasphemous to, to leave it there. He's that and more, <laughs> and more, 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 infinitely more. The gospel message is that God sent, is, is not that God sent one of his angels to save mankind, like other religions will tell you. The message of the gospel is that God himself came to save mankind and to redeem us. That the absolute has entered into the, into the particulars. That the metaphysical has become physical. That ultimate reality has entered into reality. That someone so big and infinite has become touchable, huggable, kissable. He laughs. He walks. He smells food and goes, oh, I'm hungry. Give me some fish. He cares. He cries. We're talking about God. We're getting to know, in this book, the book of Mark, we're getting to know God himself. Isn't that why we're here? I mean, the answer is yes. But especially intentionally why we come together on Sunday mornings. I am not here for the carbs on that table, although they're nice. I'm not here for the coffee, although it's really good, Richard, thank you. I'm not here primarily to see your faces, although I love hanging out with you guys and I love Sunday mornings, but what makes you guys into coffee and the carbs and the, the relationships infused with eternal power is Jesus. Jesus. That's what it's all about. So, did I whet your appetite enough? Are you excited? Mark. Mark. 